Good morning, everybody. While our kids from uh, KOM are heading out, let me uh, extend to you another welcome. Uh, my name is Thomas Gardner, and it's my great privilege to serve here at Riverwood as the teaching pastor. And I'm very grateful now to have the opportunity to open God's Word together with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to take them and open to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Um, we've been in a study of Mark's Gospel now for um, really since the beginning of the year. We started off our year kind of thinking about some big picture things with the year, but we've been introducing and then getting into the text of Mark's Gospel. And uh, we're thankful then this morning to be together as the church. God gathers his church together. He gathers them around his word that he might minister his presence to us. And so we're thankful this morning to be able to look now into God's word. We've been looking into the early part of Jesus' ministry. And as we've been in Mark, one of the things we've noted is that Mark is less concerned with chronology. He, he's not so much putting together a specifically ordered account in first event to last, but he's telling the story of Jesus through the eyes of Peter. Peter is Mark's apostolic source for his gospel. And what he's done is he's organized accounts about Jesus' life and ministry, and he's putting, it, putting them together in groups connected with sort of themes. And one of the themes that we saw over the last couple of weeks is the beginning of the opposition to Jesus. And so we're going to see this morning how that takes a more clear and direct form as we look at Mark chapter 3. And our focus this morning, it's going to be a big section of Scripture, verses 7 through 35 of Mark chapter 3. By way of introduction, let's just remember that the big picture of what Jesus has been doing is that he's been going around primarily in Galilee. What we, saw, we talked about how at the beginning Jesus' ministry in Mark's gospel is structured around geography. It begins in Galilee, it then transitions and moves towards its climax ultimately in Jerusalem. So we've been in this first portion of the gospel speaking about his ministry within Galilee where Jesus has been proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God and performing miracles. And through those things, his proclamation and his actions, he's demonstrated his power and authority as Messiah, the Son of God. That's what Mark wants us to keep in mind the entire time as we study this gospel. What we're seeing now, though, we've begun to see in the last couple of weeks, is that his ministry is expanding. It's growing in popularity, and with that then, comes, it forces people to reckon with who Jesus claims to be. And so, there are going to be some who turn to him and become his followers. Others are going to be intrigued by him and maybe follow him to see the things that he's going to do or to hear some of the things he's going to teach. Still others, though, are suspicious of him, maybe even outright, outrightly hostile towards them. Here's our key point this morning and what we're thinking about in this big section of scripture we're going to be looking at. Although Jesus was rejected by some and hindered in his work by others, his ministry continued to grow as he called others to himself and set them apart as servants of God. We're going to see opposition to Jesus this morning. Some of it's going to be indirect, some of it's going to be direct. In the midst of that, though, Jesus is calling to himself a people. People who are going to be with him, who he is going to equip to go forward and serve God, to carry out and serve along with him in his mission that has been entrusted to him. And again, in this portion of Scripture, Mark, speaking to us through Peter's eyes, he wants us to consider these accounts, and he wants us to ask, are we following Jesus, or are we opposing Jesus? 
That's really what this section of Scripture confronts us with. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer, and then we'll study His Word together. Father, thank you just even as we've sung, Lord, uh, that we can recognize that you are the holy God. You are the one who is completely set apart from all others. You are the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, Lord, and we owe everything to you. Lord, I just thank you this morning uh, that you, the one who has made all things, who upholds the universe by the word of your power, you've been so gracious and merciful to us as your people to bring us to know you through Jesus and then to call us together to have fellowship with you and with one another this morning. Lord, as we look into your word, we would confess that we are limited. We would confess that our minds wander, that our hearts wander. And so, Father, we would just ask this morning that your spirit would show us the Lord Jesus in your word. That, Lord, as we see the things that happened in Jesus' life and ministry, that we would not just view those things as historical events that are interesting but have no bearing on our life, but we would instead ask questions of ourselves in light of what you are doing and what you are showing us in your word. Father, I just thank you that your word is powerful, that it goes forth and accomplishes your purposes. It does not return void. And so, Father, send your word forth among us this morning by your spirit and accomplish in us what you would do for your glory. And we ask that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your outline, it'll be helpful for you to follow along with where we're going. Because we have such a large section of Scripture, I'm not going to read it here on the front end. We'll read the sections as we work through them. So we're going to be thinking about what's going on this morning, this big passage of verses 7 through 35, in sort of two larger units that are then broken down a little bit further. So this first larger unit is connected to looking at those who follow the Lord. Okay, and this is going to be from verses 7, really, through verse 19. So let's begin looking at the crowd that surrounded Jesus. If you have your Bibles, take a look. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version in each of these passages that we look at. All right, so Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because, the crowd, for the, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Let's go back and review a little bit of kind of where we're going. I think it's helpful to see things. If you're like me, visuals help. We're, we're looking at the region of Galilee. Jesus has been doing ministry primarily in and around the small town of Capernaum. We'll think a little bit more about that later as he returns to that place. He's been doing ministry in and around the Sea of Galilee where he's called his disciples. Many of the people that are joining with him, they're coming from this region. But what we see here in this description of the crowd is that the crowds are coming from all over the place. They're not just coming from Galilee, they're coming from other places. This is sort of the region, the area around the Sea of Galilee, just so you can keep the geography in mind as we're thinking about these things. In and around a lake that's probably the size, a little bit bigger than our reservoir, just for our ability to sort of think through the size of the Sea of Galilee. The people are coming, though, from various regions. Okay, It mentions that they're coming from Edumia, which is an area south of Jerusalem, 
They're coming from Jerusalem and Judea themselves. They're coming from across the Jordan, this area called Perea. They're coming from further north, areas like Tyre and Sidon. So you can see that people are coming to Galilee because clearly word about Jesus is spreading. Now, in some ways, that's a really good thing. People are hearing about something that God is doing in the world, and so they're coming to be a part of that, to see what God is doing. But as we're going to see, there's also other people that hear about this ministry, people who maybe would be in opposition to it. They also are going to come and be a part of what is going on, ultimately to oppose Jesus. The main thing that Mark is doing here is he's showing us that Jesus' popularity is growing. It's, he's becoming well-known. And so you get people who are following him from around all of these areas. And Jesus recognizes that this is going to impede his ministry. We've seen this before already. Remember, there are people crowded around the home of Peter. It's been very difficult for Jesus to do certain aspects of ministry. That's why the friends of the paralytic have to break open a hole in the roof of Peter's home to lower him down in. These crowds are an issue. And so he specifically tells them to get a boat ready. Now, it says in the text that that boat is there to keep him away from the crowd so that they don't overwhelm him, but it would have also afforded him the opportunity specifically to teach. When people are constantly crowding around him, wanting miracles and things like that, he has less opportunity to preach and proclaim. And remember, over and over again in Mark, he stated that his purpose has come to preach, to proclaim the truth about the coming of the kingdom of God. So he's preparing to be able to do the things that God's called him to do. Yes, of course, he comes to heal and deliver, but he also comes to proclaim and preach the truth, ultimately that people would repent and turn to God so that they would embrace him as Messiah and be ready to receive the kingdom that he is offering. I want you to see here, though, that Jesus' response to the crowd, the things that he does in light of the crowd, but also to the demons, they demonstrate how he used his power and authority. He uses his power and authority for the good of sinners and then ultimately to deal with demons and specifically to exercise authority over them, to cast them out. And so you see that here in this little account. It's again illustrating something about how Jesus uses his power and authority. He has compassion on those who are in need. He heals disease. He has compassion on those who are afflicted by spiritual evil. He delivers them from evil spirits. And it's so interesting to see. Don't miss that it highlights that the crowds follow Jesus. Now, that's not necessarily meaning that they are following Jesus in the way the disciples are, but that's a significant thing, though. They're coming to him because they recognize something to be true about him. Also, don't miss the, the things that the demonic spirits, that the unclean spirits say when they fall down before him. They say, you are the Son of God. There's a tremendous irony here in light of where this big passage of Scripture is going because we're going to see the opponents of Jesus who do not follow him, who do not recognize his authority, who do not worship him, and who do not consider him to be the Son of God. So there's a tremendous irony here in that you've got these commoners and these demonic spirits who all correctly identify Jesus. And that's going to be in stark contrast to the religious leaders. That's your key point. The responses of both the crowd and the demons to Jesus will stand as an indictment against the religious leaders who will ultimately reject him. The, rep- the opponents recognize his power and authority. What we're going to see, though, is they're going to deny his true identity. They're going to recognize that there's something going on with this guy, but they can't come to believe or accept who he claimed to be. So then we get a transition to verses 13 and 19. So there are some who are following him, 
Some who are clearly believers. Now, in a crowd that size, there would have been those, again, who were just there to see what might happen. But as you transition to verse 13, it's, taking, it's going from this big picture, uh, or this big, uh, yeah, look at a crowd that follows Jesus to where it's narrowing in on his closest followers. Okay, so verse 13, let me read 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and might, he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanegras, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. What we see here is that Jesus, from this situation with the crowds near the sea, Mark gives us another account. Okay? This may not have happened right directly afterwards, but think about visually what Mark is doing. He's showing that there's a big group of people that follow, but then Jesus, from that large group, pulls out close followers. It's really what Mark is doing here in a literary sense with these accounts. Now, we don't know what exactly, it says he just goes up on the mountain. We don't know what specific mountain is in view here. This is a mountain near Galilee, uh, Mount Hattin. Uh, if you've ever been there, this, is, uh, this area is actually called the Horns of Hattin. You see it looks sort of like horns. There's a huge battle uh, during the time of the Crusades that was fought in this area. If you ever get a chance to go up to the Sea of Galilee, usually they'll take you over and show you this area. This is a fairly large mount area that's near Galilee, so it's possible he went here. We don't really know. It's also possible he may have gone to the area that's traditionally known as where the Sermon on the Mount took place. We don't know if he goes up on a high, high mountain or if he goes up on a hill that's simply referred to as a mount here. But don't miss the imagery, okay? The imagery, I think, is really, really clear. The exercise of this authority, notice Jesus just goes up on the mountain and he called those to him whom he desired. He calls these 12 men to come with him. And there's a clear picture. When you look in Israel's history, there's a really important time where God calls some people to him on a mountain. And that happens back in the Exodus. Specifically, you see Moses and the elders of Israel coming up on the mountain to meet with God. This is amazing, though, because this, Jesus is not like Moses in this situation. Jesus is like Yahweh. He's the Lord calling people to himself. And in the same way that the Lord constitutes Israel as a people, you have the beginning of him constituting those who are going to be his followers who will ultimately become the leaders in the church that he is going to form beginning at Pentecost. So there's a lot of symbolism that you see here. It says that he declares these men, he appoints them whom he named apostles. That word is so interesting. Um, in the Greek, the Greek term there, it just carries the idea of a delegate or an envoy, someone who goes as a messenger. And so think about this. When you think about an envoy, it, it's one person sent from one to another with a particular message. So he's pulling these men to him. They are going to be his delegates, his envoys, his messengers. Ultimately, they're going to be the ambassadors of his kingdom. They're going to point towards him as Messiah and to the kingdom that he is promising. He's the one who has called them authoritative, authoritatively to themselves. And notice this, he also commissioned. So Jesus' authority to call and commission is demonstrated here. That's your bullet point. As he sets these men apart, he calls them to himself in this place, and he then commissions them. 
He entrusts them. And their ministry, notice, looks a lot like his ministry. What does he call them to do? First of all, they come to be with him. Don't miss that little detail. They come to be with him. They have to be with him, in proximity to him, if they're going to carry out the assignment that he gives to them, specifically that they're going to preach and they're going to have the authority to cast out demons. Being with him is significant because they're going to learn that ultimately the power resides in him and not in them. And we're going to see them learn this over and over again the hard way. I've heard it said before that sometimes people, um, they find the landmines by stepping on them. That's what the disciples are going to do. They're going to fail over and over again. But here at the beginning, we see what Jesus is trying to do with them. They're to be with him, and they're to be close to him. And even within this group of 12, there's going to be a tighter-knit group. The first three men that are mentioned, Peter, James, and John, if you'll notice, he gives them nicknames. It's showing in some ways that they're set apart. And I don't know, maybe Jesus had nicknames for the other guys, but for whatever reason, those things weren't recorded. Um, but it is interesting that you see, and, I, and don't miss the... Don't miss the wonderfully human aspect of that. That Jesus, I think a lot of times we think of Jesus doing this and we keep it very devout in our minds and we miss the fact that Jesus is truly human and he's here with a group of guys who become his friends. And there's a particular inner group that's closest to him and those are the guys that he's got nicknames for. I think there's a wonderfully beautiful thing there about just the friendship that he would have had. Of course, they would have had reverence for him as Lord, but there would have been the connection and friendship there as well. The key point here, oh, uh, uh, with this, I've kind of already mentioned this, but the calling of these men to serve his his inner circle, it's both practical and symbolic. He can't go around with a crowd of 500 people and disciple all of them. It's not practical. So he calls together these 12, and again, the 12, it's a picture Okay, clearly it's a picture. It recalls the imagery of Israel having 12 tribes. It's on a mountain. Israel was called to Sinai. He's calling these men to himself. They're going to be a new people. And Peter, to use Peter's own words from 1 Peter, the church is ultimately going to be a new nation set apart, comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And they're going to serve as his ambassadors and his witnesses. Here's the key point, though. In setting apart the 12, the Lord Jesus demonstrated that the primary identity marker of his followers is that they are those who will be with him. They're those who will be with him. The imagery is proximity, but it's not just proximity. It's connection and relationship. It's intimate fellowship. They're going to be learning from him. They're going to be learning to exercise his authority for his glory. David Garland, I think, is good here. He says this. He says, Without any meaningful relationship with Jesus— Their lives and mission in the future will be ineffectual. To be with Jesus ultimately has nothing to do with physical proximity. It means to have a meaningful relationship with him that results in heeding his words and following in his example. That's what these apostles are going to do. They're going to learn from him, but what the main thing they're going to ultimately learn is dependence upon him because they're going to see their own weakness. And so that's going to be such an important lesson for them to learn once he dies, is buried, and he ascends ultimately. He resurrects, he's resurrected and he ascends. They're going to realize that when he sends the Spirit, he is still with them. They still have to be reliant ultimately on him and his power. It's not them, it's him in them and through them. So we're going to see them learning these lessons throughout Mark's gospel. Okay, as we transition to this next section, I'm excited because for those of you who were there at the beginning, if you remember, I told you uh, when we were introducing Mark's gospel that one of his favorite things to do is he has these things that we, 
the very technical theological term called Markan sandwiches. Okay? He does these things with passages of Scripture where he starts a story, and it's like it's, it would be this one story, but then he takes this other story and he jams it in the middle, and it makes sort of like a sandwich. That's what we've got here with verses 20 through 35. It should be 35, not 34. You have the first part up here, which is the opposition of Jesus' family. Then he's going to insert another section here that's the opposition of the religious leaders. And this opposition is going to be much more direct. This is more indirect. This is direct. Then it returns back to speak about his family again. So this is our first Markin sandwich that we're going to look at. So let's look at the first part here, which would be uh, Jesus' family coming to seek him. Now, Jesus, look, look at what it says in verse 20. This is 20, just, I'll read 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, we don't know where home is. Does he go back to Nazareth? That's his hometown. Probably not. He probably goes back to Capernaum. Remember, he's been using the house of Peter and Andrew as sort of his jumping off point for his ministry in Galilee. He keeps returning back to this location in Capernaum. And so he's probably back there. Okay, recall that Capernaum, small fishing village settlement on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Peter would have had a home there within the area. Um, we've, I, I showed you guys kind of architectural plans. I didn't put them in the PowerPoint this week. But actually, Peter and Andrew's home would have been fairly sizable. Um, it's, it's, it was bigger than maybe you would have thought at this time, which meant that maybe their business was successful. They were successful fish, fishermen. Peter's house, here's sort of an artist rendition of Peter's home, just kind of giving you an idea of the size, okay? It would have had a courtyard, multiple buildings on the property. This is what, where Jesus in all likelihood returns to. Hopefully they've fixed the roof by this point where they lowered the paralyzed guy through. So the home is there in Capernaum. Jesus comes back there, and what we'll notice then is that his family is mentioned. Now, if you've got the NASB, it doesn't say his family, okay? If you have the NASB, it says his own people. That's a more literal rendering of the phrase that's there. But in light of the way the passage in Mark functions, where you've got this part up here, and then the part it returns back to that same account, and it mentions his mother and brothers, that's why the ESV and most other translations go ahead and say his family there. It just means those who are close to him, those who, those who are his people is literally what it says. So what we see here then, your first bullet point there, after resuming his ministry at Capernaum, the family of Jesus came to stop him. Sorry, I forgot to include that last thing. They come to stop him, which is pretty interesting to think about, especially when we're going to see that his mother Mary is included in this. They come to get him. It says they come to seize him, literally to lay hold of him is what they're coming to do. Why? It says because they think he's lost it. He's out of his mind. Now, this is really interesting because this is probably happening. It, Jesus has been having a traveling itinerant ministry for a while at this point. This is not like week two of his ministry. So his family would have been aware of the things that he was preaching, the things that he was doing. They would have had a knowledge and an awareness of this. But in this case, it seems like something has changed. And if we're tracking with what Mark has been doing and showing us. If you remember last week, we saw two very interesting controversies that happened in Jesus' life surrounding the Sabbath. If word is spreading that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker, 
Maybe now what's happened is that word is spread about him that's good, that he's preaching and teaching and that he's healing people. But now in light of the opposition, word may also be spreading that, you know, he breaks the Sabbath or he teaches that you don't have to keep the Sabbath. Things that would have distorted the things that he actually said and the things that he actually did. Those would have been extremely serious charges. Nazareth isn't that far away from where all these things are happening. Word would have spread. Perhaps his family hears about this. It's very interesting. They, their actions may have been motivated by his altercations with the Pharisees. And so what's happening is maybe they're coming to get hold of him for his own sake. They're, they're worried. If, if he's continually, if, if he's being accused of breaking the Sabbath or teaching that you can break the Sabbath, that's very, very dangerous for him. Maybe they're coming to help him. The other thing, though, is it would have reflected very negatively on their family. People knew who Jesus was. They knew where he was from. And so especially within Nazareth, if Jesus is known as being opposed to the Pharisees, you've got, we, we have in our mind Pharisee equals bad guy because that's how we've read the scriptures a lot of times. But you've got to understand in the first century, the Pharisees were the theologically conservative people who sought to teach people God's word and make sure they followed him. And so now if that's, those people are perceived that way and Jesus is in opposition to them, who seems like the bad guy? Jesus does. So the concern here for his family may have been to go and get him before he gets himself killed or before he damages the, the family's reputation too much. So they go literally to lay hands on him. Maybe again, even they've heard accusations of blasphemy against him. Here's the key point. The actions of his family, though possibly well-intentioned, demonstrated their lack of faith in him and were therefore a hindrance to his ministry. They, do, they clearly do not truly understand what he's come to do. And it's hard to think of it that way because when we read the, uh, like in Luke's gospel about Mary and her treasuring these things in her heart and we have the account of what happens when he goes to the temple when he's 12, you, I really think though we think that crazy, st- or not crazy, but we think of big events like that that were very supernatural and clearly identifying. Maybe we think those things happened all the time. And I think the silence of the scripture shows us that they don't. His life is extremely normal. And so for his mother, even though she knows who he is, even though she understands ultimately what he's come to do, I don't think she gets the fullness of it in the way he's accomplishing it. She did not expect it to happen this way. And his brothers, I think you can see that his immediate family, especially his brothers, they don't even believe in him. They don't even believe that he is who he claims to be. And you see that, I think, in John's gospel where they sort of make fun of him and they say, hey, well, if, you're gonna, if you are who you say you are, why don't you go down to the feast and show yourself to everybody? So we've got a situation here where it's showing you that there is opposition to Jesus from even within his most immediate family, his closest relatives in light of this. They have become his opponents. Mark then pauses that account of his family and he gives us a more extensive account of another situation that happens. Now, I don't think Mark wants us to read this as sequential because I really think 20 and 21 go with 30 through 35. I think they're all one account, but he sandwiched another count here in the middle. So what he's going to do now is he's going to tell us about these scribes who've come. Okay, so let me read verses 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. I was joking last week with Harold um, when I was in my early 20s, I can't remember what summer it was, I, I served here as kind of a youth intern, and Harold had started preaching through Mark's gospel uh, in the like, youth Sunday school class, and he was like, hey, you can teach the youth Sunday school class, and I was like, awesome, that's a great opportunity, and so the first week I taught, it was this passage, the unpardonable sin, and there was a group that was in town uh, that had been working with uh, Jasper Bacon's group up in Canton, so my first Sunday school class teaching is like a 20-year-old or 21-year-old. I've got this passage. There's all the youth kids plus like 30 visiting kids and their youth leaders who are all just sitting there staring at me, and I've got to talk about this. So it was really kind of funny to look back on that and be like, it's fun to be able to come at this now <laughs> with much more understanding than just going, Charles Ryrie in his notes on my Bible says this. Uh, to be able to look at these things and think about this. Uh, we're going to get to the whole unpardonable sin thing, but let's go up and let's think about the situation, okay? Mark inserts this account of Jesus' interactions with scribes who had come to Galilee from Jerusalem. That's an important thing. These are not just the local Pharisees. These are not the local pastors in the area. These are the guys that have come from Jerusalem, and they're specifically mentioned to be scribes. You need to think of what's happened here in all likelihood is that if you go back, the accounts that we saw in the last couple of weeks with the Sabbath controversies, those are dealing with the local Pharisees, the local scribes within the areas. What's clearly happened is those guys have been dealing with Jesus and they don't know what to do with him, but it seems wrong, so they got to call for backup. So they've sent word to Jerusalem in light of what all is going on. And it's interesting that these guys, these scribes, come from Jerusalem. So this would be like local pastors in the area not really knowing what to do, getting in touch with where they went to seminary, and sending some of the theologians up to try to deal with the situation. That's kind of what we've got going on here with these scribes coming from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the scribes were trained. This is the center of religious life for the nation of Israel, for the people, uh, for the Jewish people. So these scribes have come, and it's interesting that they've come ready to go. They're not coming down on a fact-finding mission to follow Jesus around and see what's going on. They, they've heard what's happening, and they come with a prepackaged message. Look, they come down from Jerusalem, and they were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub. He, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They show up with this message. So clearly, they've gotten together, and they've said, okay, we're going to focus, the, the local Pharisees have tried to address some of the, the practices of Jesus and his disciples, but one of the things they can't deal with is what do we do with the fact that he's healing these people and that he's casting out demons? We don't have an explanation for that. So clearly, there's been pre-planned thought where they've said, okay, this guy can't be who he claims to be. How is he doing this? And it leads them to this conclusion 
And notice that their accusation, it's really more spoken about Jesus rather than to him. He's the one who goes and finds these guys. If you look at the text, he calls them to himself to speak to them. They're going around trying to do damage control in the area about who this guy is and who he's claiming to be. So they come there, these these, uh, scribes come, and clearly the things they're saying, if what they're saying is true, Jesus should be killed. He should be killed. If you look in Leviticus, look at this verse from Leviticus 20 that I've given. A man or woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, and their blood shall be upon them. You see a very similar thing in Deuteronomy as well. They're accusing him of using evil demonic power in order to control demons. The, the, term that, the name that they use is Beelzebul. Uh, uh, this is an interesting term. It, it, it's a name for the god of Ekron. Um, you could render it Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. Basically, it was considered, it was this demon that was considered to be the, the Lord over this place where the other demons dwelt. So it's, it's, there is a, an idea of like the prince of demons, the one who's sort of over all the other demons. And there were, there were these very interesting and kind of weird intertestamental writings that talked about angels and demons and all these different names and hierarchies and structures. Notice how when Jesus comes and confronts, with them, confronts them, he doesn't go into any of that. He doesn't go into all these names. He simply recognizes that they're accusing him of using satanic power, evil power, to drive out these demons. And he speaks then specifically of Satan or the adversary. He goes to them, and on the front end, he just asks them a question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus is great with this when he's accused of things or when they're trying to trick him. We're going to see this throughout his Gospels. He asks them a question. And so he just asked that question on the front end. How can Satan drive out Satan? He then confronts them, though, with parables, parables that draw on imagery from the Old Testament. So he says this, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. It's a very simple image that he draws to mind. If a kingdom falls into civil war, it's not built up and strengthened. That weakens it, and it can ultimately weaken it to the point of falling apart. In Israel's own history, they have the background of that, the breaking apart of the kingdom into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and the conflict that happened over centuries that weakened both of them to the point that they were eventually conquered. So there's imagery. It's it's a logical thing that he brings, but it also carries imagery from the Old Testament. But then he says this, He says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. He's trying to say how ridiculous it is that they would accuse him of driving out demons by the power of Satan. It's destroying Satan's work and destroying Satan's kingdom, which is actually what Jesus has come to do and is doing. So there's huge irony in that what they're saying would mean the destruction of Satan's kingdom, but they don't necessarily see it that way. And Jesus is actually carrying out that destruction, but that's not how they understand it. The second part of the illustration, though, is biblical, where he talks about the strong man. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So there's a thing that it's called to mind. I mean, just imagine a a powerful man. You can't just go in his house and start taking stuff. You've got to first bind the guy or control the guy. 
It's not just an illustration, though. It actually is derived from the Old Testament, specifically in the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, there is this, Isaiah, by the time you get to this point, Isaiah is anticipating captivity. He's anticipating judgment coming upon Judah from the Babylonians. And so there are these sort of rhetorical questions asked. It says, can prey be taken from the mighty? The picture here is the captives, the people who are taken captive by the Babylonians. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? So if the Babylonians come and they destroy Jerusalem and they take away captives, can somebody grab some swords and go free those captives? No. That's the implied answer to this is that no. (laughs) Of course that can't happen. But look at 25 and 26. For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Jesus is recalled, there's, there's a, a very similar imagery here. It's this parable that fits very well with this. The answer to this is no, unless God does it. So what Jesus is doing, he's saying here, if God says he can redeem you from worldly enemies, how much more powerful am I if I can redeem you from spiritual enemies, from your true enemy, Satan, the adversary, the one who opposes you, who opposes God Jesus is the great deliverer. So part of this parable, it's implying that he has come to do what no one else can do. He is the redeemer. That's part of his identity as the Messiah. He's going to accomplish a greater redemption. What we see then, though, is he also then, this is your next bullet point, he says, he then authoritatively warned them about the eternal consequences of their blasphemous claims against the work of the Spirit. He begins there with this phrase, truly I say to you. In the Greek, it's the word amen. Now, when you say the word amen, when do you say it? Say it at the end of something, right? A prayer happens, amen. Someone says something true from the pulpit or in the song, amen. It's this recognition that something is true. May it be, it is true. In, in, for these people, it would have been absolutely a response to the reading of God's word, to the proclaiming of God's word. It's something you say after God's word. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He's front-loading it. This is a unique thing that Jesus does, and it is a way that Jesus marks out his authority to speak for God to speak God's word. And so he transitions there. What these men have done is not just some basic thing. They have accused the Messiah sent from God, working by the power of the Holy Spirit. Recall even that imagery. When you go back to the beginning of Mark's gospel, after Jesus is baptized, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. Now, Mark doesn't fill in all those details, but what we see here and what we've been seeing in Mark's gospel is that Jesus clearly has power over Satan. Satan has not overcome Jesus. Jesus has overcome him because Jesus is now casting out all of his servants. He's freeing people from his power. So Jesus is being set up in Mark's gospel as the one who overcomes Satan, who overcomes the adversary. 
And here come these scribes attributing to Jesus this work of deliverance. They're saying, this is Satan working in and through him. He's simply a servant of Satan. And so Jesus, speaking authoritatively, says, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, whatever their blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, we always want to focus on the, on the, the unforgivable or unpardonable sin aspect, but please notice the fullness of forgiveness that's spoken of here. Every sin, whatever blasphemies they're at, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. This would have been, this would have blown the mind of a Jewish religious leader. How, how, do, how do you forgive blasphemy? You can't forgive blasphemy. It's punishable by death. And Jesus is saying he's come to offer forgiveness. That's, the, that's what's implied in the background here, that God is willing to forgive. He, he freely forgives those who are guilty. And yet clearly here, what they are doing, this is highlighted as a sin that is, it, it's, it's an eternal sin. Because they're saying, and then Mark tells us specifically, it's because they're saying he has an unclean spirit. Now it's interesting here, there's perhaps an ironic use of blasphemy here. This Greek word blasphemeo, it can refer to like blasphemy in a big theological sense, but it can also be used of slander. So if you were speaking Greek and you were talking about someone being slandered, you would say they were blasphemed. This person blasphemed this other person. So they are definitely on a human level slandering Jesus because they're saying he's doing something he's not doing. That's slander. But at the same time, there's an irony there because they are blaspheming God because God is the one doing this work and they're refusing to attribute it to him. They're attributing that work to Satan. So they've committed blasphemy against God himself. Because of that, they are in danger of committing a sin with eternal consequences. Now, there's a couple of ways to understand this. And if you look at different commentaries, they'll highlight different things. One way to understand this is that this idea of an unpardonable or eternal sin is that it's situation-specific. Okay? Jesus is incarnate as, God, as the God-man, doing the work that God has entrusted to him by the power of the Spirit, and these people reject him, highlighting his work as being not the result of the Spirit, but the result of satanic influence, possession even. So it's situation-specific. And I think there's some truth to that. But I do think as well that there is a general principle of the sin of rejecting Jesus, which can be repeated. So in one sense, the question you'll see, some people, this is like, you know, when you're in like eighth or ninth grade or something, you read this the first time and you freak out, can I commit the unpardonable sin? Okay, there's debate or discussion in youth meetings or late at night at camp or whatever. The reality is that in the specific sense, no, because the God-man is not in your presence doing miracles that you reject as the work of the Spirit. But in a general sense, yes, you can commit an unforgivable sin in the sense that you can reject Jesus, can reject him for who he is. I think this from R.T. Francis' commentary, I think is really good on this. It says, it may be safely asserted that the vast majority of cases involving those who fear that they have committed or might commit the unforgivable sin have little or nothing to do with what this is saying or talking about. This is key. Underline this. It is a warning to those who adopt a position of deliberate rejection and antagonism, not an attempt to frighten those of a tender conscience. If you're one of those people of a tender conscience, this account is not in Scripture to terrify you. 
It's not here to make you worry. This account is to show you, and and remember, this fits within a wider account about those who follow Jesus. Are the disciples perfect? Jesus is going to say to Peter, the closest of his disciples, get behind me, Satan. He's going to call him adversary and say that he's on the side of Satan. And yet, Peter does not commit the unpardonable sin. This is connected to their antagonism towards Jesus. And I was thinking about this because this is, unbelief manifests itself in different ways. Sometimes it manifests itself in indifference, okay? Sometimes it manifests itself in antagonism. Someone who is indifferent is just as rebellious against God as someone who is antagonistic, and yet the manifestation of it means that how we identify it is different. You see this a lot with people um, there's a big movement now. I don't know if you've seen this on social media. People referring to themselves as ex-evangelicals, that maybe they were raised in the evangelical church and they've either walked away from the faith or they certainly reject a lot of things that they once believed to be true about the faith. And some people do it in an indifferent way, but the thing now that I'm seeing a lot is it's coming in a very antagonistic way, okay? Speaking ill of the church, speaking ill of um, maybe not so much Jesus, but um, they, they like to keep some aspects of Jesus, that Jesus loved people, that's kind of the main one, and then they just reject everything else that Jesus said or that his apostles said about him. And so you see with some of those people a definite antagonism. This is a warning to people like that. You don't just get to treat the Son of God that way. You don't get to just speak in a way that's blasphemous towards him. You are, you're flirting with danger there. Now, In that sense, then, ultimately the Lord knows who are his, and my goodness, people can make shipwreck of their lives and still not lose their salvation. But for those who are antagonistic, I think there is a warning here. There's a warning here that those who would be antagonistic against the Lord, they are in danger of having never been believers in the first place. They were never saved to begin with. So this, this whole situation, what it's ultimately doing is it's showing us the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders, the people who should have known the scriptures the best, the people who should have been most ready to receive the ministry of Messiah. These are the ones who come to find him to accuse him of doing the work of Satan. This is the rejection of Jesus. It's the rejection of his message proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. And what it does is it it serves as a major shift in Mark's gospel. We're going to see this. Jesus is going to begin teaching more in parables. He's going to begin doing things differently and beginning to speak more about where this thing is headed. This is the key point. The decisive rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders pointed forward to the ultimate work that he had come to accomplish. He's going to start speaking more about his rejection. He's going to start speaking more about his death because the rejection of the religious leaders, I mean, this is just showing you that the people in Jerusalem are not going to be ready to receive Jesus. As he heads towards Jerusalem, he's not headed towards being crowned king. He's headed towards his ultimate death and crucifixion. Okay, so we continue, we we finish this by coming back to the scene in the home, verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called. Now, let's think about our picture here of the home. Imagine this surrounded. Imagine people filling the courtyard, and his mother and his brothers are outside, and they're trying to get to him, because remember, they're trying to seize him. Verse 33, and a crowd or a group was sitting around him, and they said to him, 
Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Mark returns to this account of Jesus' family in order to highlight an important aspect of discipleship. And this imagery is really clear. From about here on out, you're going to see Mark use imagery of like inside, outside. There's people who are inside the circle near Jesus, and there's people who are outside. And the image here is that his family, his own family, is outside, and yet there are those who are inside with him. Literally, the term carries the idea of encircling him. So the picture is that his followers are eating with him in Peter's home, or they're at least sitting with him. There's close, there's intimacy of fellowship that's there. And yet what you see is that his family is outside. And this is going to be important because Jesus later on is going to talk about the cost of discipleship. He's going to talk about how at some point in following him that it may create tension between husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, mothers and, mothers and fathers and children, There's a cost to following him, and his own life pictures that. To follow him, those who follow him, they're they're with him in his presence, and they're experiencing fellowship with him, but his own family isn't because of their unbelief and because of their opposition towards him. So what we see here is that the call to come to Jesus may mean conflict within your own biological family. This is a significant thing, especially in this culture. In our culture, it's like a rite of passage to turn against your family and go believe other things or do other things. It's like the people, the culture cheers you on and is just readily anticipating that you're going to do that. It's like you haven't become fully human and fully an adult unless you repudiate the things you were taught by your parents. This culture was not like that at all. So in some ways, what Jesus is doing is controversial, but notice that he's not insulting his family. He's not doing something that would have broken the law. Now, people may have seen what he's doing as dishonoring his family, but he was not dishonoring his family. He's simply making a greater point that to know him and to come to him and to believe in him is to become a part of a new family, a different family. And that's what he does when he looks around. David Garland again, he says, While becoming Jesus' disciple may cause the fabric of the family to rip, this pronouncement reveals that Jesus does not call people to be completely bereft of family, Disciples become part of a greater family of faith whose first allegiance is to do the will of God. His own biological family is going to come to realize this. They don't realize it here, but two of his brothers write books of Scripture, James and Jude. So we need to recognize that what we're being shown is that in this moment, his most immediate family is struggling to understand and really believe who he is. If Mary certainly believes who he is, but she's, trying to, she's struggling to understand his mission and the way it's being carried out. But we need to see that following his death, burial, and resurrection, the people who were skeptical about him come to faith in him and become leaders in the early church. That is a huge, huge apologetic statement that you can make. I've told you this before. I've kind of used this example. But if my little brother claimed to be without sin and to be the son of God— I'm the last person that would believe that because I lived with him and I saw everything he did and he would say the same thing about me. We were terrible to each other at times. So imagine then for Jesus' mother and his brothers and sisters to come to a place where they worship him as God incarnate. That is a huge, huge thing that any of you out here who are skeptical that you have to deal with, especially if you have brothers and sisters and you know what they were like and you've lived with them. 
His brothers and sisters came to worship him as the God-man in light of everything they experienced with him in life. So see that, that they do come to that place. Here's the key point, though. Jesus' use of familial terminology in reference to his followers, it highlights the intimate nature of the relationship that he invites people to share with him and with one another. It's intimate relationship, family relationship. Some concluding thoughts. I was trying to think practically, what are ways that we can apply this? Sometimes it's hard to apply narrative accounts. But I was thinking about this. One of the things that we've seen in this passage is that we've been warned of the sinful tendency of people to oppose the Lord. I hope you've seen that. And again, that we can oppose in direct and indirect ways. Directly opposing the Lord. Some people just reject Jesus outright and they're hostile and they're antagonistic to him and to his word. Jesus is warned of the eternal consequences of this. We should be those who recognize Jesus' authority and who he is, his power, his authority. We, we are to, in, it, it's amazing that the demons bow down before him and call, recognize that he's the son of God. And these scribes reject him and say that he's working by the power of Satan. That should show you the hardness of the human heart. And so those who would directly oppose Jesus, you are warned. You are warned. He will not suffer blasphemy forever. He says to you, all blasphemies can be forgiven. All sins of man can be forgiven. But you will stand before him one day. Either your direct accusations against him, your direct rejection of him, or your indifference towards him. You will stand before him one day. I was thinking about this, though, too, that we can indirectly oppose him. And what's interesting, again, that his family is brought in here, and Mary, who does believe she is lumped in with those who oppose him. Your Roman Catholic friends, this is a bit of a problem for them. Mary is opposing Jesus' ministry. You can highlight that to them if you have some conversations. Don't do it in an angry, mean way, but just show them something like that. This is a big undermining of the idea of Mary's sinlessness. But I was thinking about this. I think at times, I know this in my own life, it's possible to oppose the Lord in an indirect way because Jesus' family, they thought what they were doing was the best thing, but it wasn't God's will. In their mind, based on their analysis of the circumstances, that seemed like the best thing. He's damaging the reputation of the family. He's going to get himself killed. Let's go get him. Seemed very logical. Was not God's will. And in light of that, then, they are opposing. They were opposing God's will. We need to be so careful that we do not work against God, but we instead work with him. That's what Jesus says. What does he say? Who his mother and brothers are? Those who do the will of God. Those are his mother and his brothers. And I was thinking about this. Parents. Parents. Be so careful with this. We think we know what's right for our kids. I think especially the older we get, we think we know what's right for our kids. We may have some good counsel to give, but we need to be very careful that we do not take the place of God and try to speak to them and say, this is definitely God's will for you. Now, of course, there's some clear things in Scripture that we can say, this is definitely God's will for you. But in decisions they're making, in, I can't tell you how many people from Christian homes have like been called in the mission field, and some of the biggest opposition has come from their Christian parents who took them to vacation Bible school and had them in church every Sunday. We need to be willing to trust our children to the Lord 
children, same thing as your parents' age. Do you trust that the Lord's still involved in your parents' lives and leading them? So we can indirectly oppose. Then this, we've been encouraged in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Remember, the, the view of the apostles on the mountain, they're called and they're set apart, but they're brought together with Jesus. Two things of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. First, it means to be with him. It means to be with him. Do you see that when you have your time in place? Do you see that as this, that you're spending time with Jesus? Or is that just when you get your Bible out and read or open your app and just knock through because you've got to click the check on that day? It's being with Jesus. That's what makes you a follower of Jesus. It's the primary thing that sets you apart is being with him, letting him speak his word to us. And again, in light of what he says to them, he, he entrusts his word to them. They're able to go out and preach. They learn about what it means to live in accordance with his word. They have authority. That's what Jesus continues to teach us by his spirit. We are his ambassadors in the world, to use Paul's imagery from 2 Corinthians. And then also we're to be with his people. We're to be with his people. I love that about that imagery of Jesus sitting in the house, <clears throat> excuse me, in the house with his followers around him. They're sitting with him. They're experiencing that fellowship with him and with one another. We're to be with him and we're to be with his people. We're part of a new family. We have fellowship together. In a difficult world, that fellowship that we have together anticipates the world to come. It anticipates our eternity with the Lord and with one another. We're called together to love and serve one another. May God grant to us that we as his people would work with him and not against him and that we would experience the fellowship that he gives to us by the Holy Spirit in the church, in our small groups, as we love and serve one another in the ways that he's called us to. Let's pray. Father, you've been good to us this morning. I thank you for these accounts from your word, these true accounts of the things that happened in the life of Jesus. Lord, we would recognize that in our own hearts, we're prone at times to be in opposition to you and what you're doing in the world, what you're doing in the lives of our children, what you're doing in the lives of our friends, what you're doing in our own lives. Father, would you grant to us that as we are with Jesus, as we spend time with him in his word, Lord, that we would come to see what your will is, your will that's good and perfect. Father, I just pray, I want to pray for parents this morning, Lord. I want to pray that you would give us wisdom to trust our children, entrust our children to you, to speak the truth when we need to, to warn when we need to warn. But Father, guard us from working against your will and your work in the lives of our children. Restrain us from those things we ask, Lord. Give us eyes to see that we would confess that sin. Father, I just thank you uh, that your people can be together this morning and can sing now. And so as we hear one another's voices together, as we sing specifically about you as our shepherd, Lord, would you remind us that you are with us. Thank you for Miss Betty's testimony, the reminder that you never leave or forsake your people. We thank you for that. That comforts us in difficult days. So Lord, we give you thanks this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.